on today's episode, my thoughts behind widespread misinformation. Welcome to the podcast, helping you overcome your proximal hamstring tendinopathy. This podcast is designed to help you understand this condition, learn the most effective evidence-based treatments, and of course, bust the widespread misconceptions. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm an online physiotherapist, recreational athlete, creator of the Run Smarter series, and a chronic proximal hamstring tendinopathy battler. Whether you are an athlete or not, this podcast will educate and empower you in taking the right steps to overcome this horrible condition. So let's give you the right knowledge along with practical takeaways in today's lesson. Thanks for joining me on another episode. Uh, Today we have an episode from the Run Smarter podcast, which I did about a month or two ago, and it is detailing the reasons or my thoughts behind why there is such widespread information, not only with PHT, but with um, how to reduce your risk of injury or how to, I guess with PHT specifically, there's a lot of misinformation. Why do some people have misdiagnosis for so long? Why do some people think they have this piriformis syndrome or glute pain before it's eventually uncovered? Why do some PhD sufferers uh, advise or health professionals tell them that stretching is the best thing for it. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Look through Facebook groups and you'll say, this worked, this didn't work. Um, I tried this, it made it worse. Why is Why do all these exist? And like I said, I did on the Run Smarter podcast and I thought it would be a perfect topic for this group, for this podcast to have a bit of a ponder about and so I thought I'd share it now. So I'll play this episode and leave you to it. I hope you're seeing results in your rehab this week. And after listening to these episodes, hopefully you're taking action and hopefully, um, like I said, you're starting to see results. So I'll play this for you now and look forward to bringing you next week's episode. Today is a bit of a spontaneous um, episode topic as I am preparing for the Run Smarter book, and uh, it's, I know I've said it in the past, it's going to be a fair bit of a, a wait, and the ideas that I have keep piling up, and I have a huge stack of ideas to write through and create, but as I continue writing the book, the more ideas I have, so not only am I chipping away, am I not chipping away at the current stack, but it's actually getting bigger, but... <clears throat> I've decided to start, especially in the new year, committing hours to writing the book when I was originally thinking of um, just doing it in the downtime, being like, oh, as soon as I have enough free time, that's when I'm going to start writing and start, you know, chipping away. But decide that that's never going to get done because I'm extremely busy and I'll always find something to fill in the time unless I book out a time slot and say, this is what I need to do. And so uh, next year, especially next year, I'm going to free out a couple of hours per day and then just slug away at it and hopefully get results a lot quicker. But the part one of the book covers the 10 universal principles that we should know by now. That It's the 10 episodes that are in the, um, the first 10 episodes of the podcast. And we talk about injury-prone Pete and how he goes through... 10 lessons, 10 chapters uh, in order to 
reduce his risk of injury, learn more about himself, learn more about running related injuries. And that um, I spent a lot of time thinking about that when I first created the podcast and the response from you guys when you're listening has been really great. And so part one of the book, there's going to be five parts. Well, my idea at the moment is five parts. It might be more <laughs> uh, come next year, but the each particular um, chapter especially when it comes to the first 10 chapters, is a lot more robust now. It has a lot more evidence behind it. It's covering uh, more articles and more literature and just more ideas that I have about almost like an updated version. And when I was going through chapter six, is it five or six? Let me look it up. Chapter five, analysis paralysis, what to pay attention to and what to avoid. I started thinking while I was typing it out and coming up with other ideas, why there is so much misinformation out there and what I believe the main contributing factors are or the main causes are for why there's so much misinformation out there. And when I talk about misinformation or misconceptions, I'm referring to um, widespread beliefs about running, about what reduces risk of injury, about um, what increase, how to increase running performance safely. That is, um, people believe is like a given rule. Prime example, like everyone should aim for a cadence of 180. That's something that I've learned. I learned when I graduated and most people, I, I hear it all the time that that's the number that people should stick to, not covered by evidence. In fact, the evidence shows that Everyone has a unique number. There is a general range somewhere between 165 to 185, but generally speaking, because of everyone's individual anatomy, body shapes, there no one should, there shouldn't be one number that everyone should strive for. Another common misconception is people believe that they should, um, that heel striking with the heel is bad and that they should all transition to forefoot striking because it's more efficient and it reduces ground reaction forces and helps you with injury prevention. Again, another misconception that's very commonly used and just commonly spread throughout the running community. And you constantly find these sort of things. You constantly find stretching that will help reduce your risk of injury or increase running performance. And when it comes to, say, treating an injury, you say, put a question on, social media and say, what's helped you with plantar fasciitis? And you'll get a whole range of replies saying, this really helped me. I did um, an ice, I froze my ice bottle and then was just rolling that twice a day and got rid of my plantar fasciitis. Other people say, I tried stretching, made it worse. Some say I tried stretching, made it a lot better. And there's just a conglomerate of confusion And where if you try looking for answers online, you're just swimming in a sea of information that some of it's really useful. Some of it will help you. Some of it won't help you. Some of it will actually be detrimental. And why, why is it? Why, why does this exist? Why isn't there just a resource or why isn't everyone agreeing on what makes things better? What doesn't make things better? What contributes to injury prevention? And so I was pondering on 
this question while I was typing out the book. And then I came up with, uh, what is it? Five, six, six reasons why I believe there is so much misinformation out there and why it's so hard if you are injured to find the right answers for treatment. And I was really proud of these six points. And so I thought I'd just put the microphone in front of me, (laughs) hit record, and then turn this into an episode because one, it's um, getting you a bit of an update about the book and I want to keep you guys updated on how it's progressing. And two, I just think this is really worthy of a podcast episode to help keep you guys involved. So with that, with warming you up on the topic, let me go through my six reasons why I believe, well, this is just my opinion and I could probably come up with a few others, but this is the my top six, I guess you could say, and you might disagree, but this is what I've come up with. All right, number one, online content producers need eyeballs and they need clicks. That's one of the reasons why, you know, YouTube thumbnails and catchy titles or blogs with slogans or products with uh, marketing thrown behind it. In order for something to get an eyeball, for someone to click on a product, for someone to read a blog, it needs to be catchy. It needs to grab your attention. And it's usually promises of something you've never heard before, like on the contrary. So like if I could just say, um, cure your plantar fasciitis with diet or something like that. And it'd just be, oh, I had no idea about that. Let me click because I'm curious. It sparks curiosity. It piques your your interest and will create these clickbait titles and these catchy thumbnails in order for you to, in order for them to get eyeballs and have a, a more of a successful business or a successful product and Obviously, these content producers, they're not held to the same accountabilities as like a health professional who needs to produce evidence-based stuff who have like fact checkers or have peer um, researchers critiquing their stuff. If you The, the promises and the, the quick fixes and all that sort of stuff generates a lot more attention than what is usually evidence-based stuff. So if I was to say you know, cure your plantar fasciitis in two months with patients doing strengthening exercises, a little bit of stretching and load management. No one's going to click on that. (laughs) And that's what the evidence does show. It's usually quite boring. It's usually um, just not eye-catching. And so these content producers aren't really, don't hold themselves accountable. They're their idea is just to let's create something flashy. Let's create something instant. People are looking for quick fixes. People are looking for something on the contrary to what they've already read. So let's come up with a title that says fix Achilles tendonitis in eight simple steps or let how to fix Achilles tendonitis in three to five minutes. And then that would be, oh, fantastic. Finally, the answer I'm looking for, click on it and then that's where all most of the confusion will lie. And so this is why I've put number one. Number one is just the online content producers or just anyone with a, a blog or a video or advertising some sort of um, gimmick, some sort of fad, some sort of product. Um, 
massage guns. I've seen that so like it's throughout my whole Instagram feed, just massage guns and all the things that they promise. Um, the I was talking to Christy Ashwanden last year, and she was talking about the supplement um, companies and how they use really dodgy, skimpy, skeptical kind of science in order to catch eyeballs, in order to draw in attention. They say like put on X amount of muscle in X amount of days. And it is, they do use evidence in that, in those slogans, but it's very skimpy evidence. And sometimes they just put in a really poorly designed study, see what comes out, whatever comes out, they say, yeah, we can use that for marketing and away they go. So that's number one. Number two, I have as patient placebos, most of you are familiar with a placebo and what the effect is, but essentially a placebo is when what you believe or the preconceived ideas that you might have about the treatment um, changes the likelihood of that treatment having an outcome. So if you start a treatment, say acupuncture, and you really believe it works, um, based on your beliefs, based on past experiences, based on what you've been told, um, based on another injury that you may have and acupuncture healed that. All of these factors, experience, context, belief, all of these will have an influence into the effectiveness of the treatment. And so this is why when you are on social media and you ask what helped your plantar fasciitis, you get so many different things and so many different types of treatments that have been beneficial for others. And this is why when we do a study or someone wants to have a really accurate measure of is this treatment effective in a particular study, they do a double blind trial. They blind the participants so they don't know what treatment they're getting. They blind the therapists so they don't know what treatment they're providing or what they're giving it's very hard to do in some circumstances uh let's just say for acupuncture you can't um blind a therapist nor can you really blind a patient to um to fool them into thinking they're receiving acupuncture when really they're not they're getting a placebo that's very hard to do but keep in mind that this is why we see so a wide variety of um, effectiveness with different treatments. And we have PRP, we have surgeries, we have um, massage balls, we have massage in general, all of these, everyone just has a different idea. Everyone has a different belief, different past experiences and leads and dictates different outcomes. And that can be, it could be quite tricky because people, or this may be misinterpreted because people might believe I talk about like orthotics and I mentioned this as an example in the book. So with an orthotic, you're not just, you're very rarely given the orthotic and say, here you go, see how you go. Like usually the experience of the orthotic is you walk into a physio clinic or a podiatry clinic or any sort of health professional clinic and they have a really nice display of orthotics. You are assessed with your injury. They might assess your foot pain or knee pain and they explain to you that 
this is why orthotics will be effective. They show you a few things. You can have a look at like the posters of orthotics on the on the wall and see the alignment that naturally happens when you put orthotics under your feet. You are then um, tailored to a particular orthotic and say this will match you specifically because of X, Y, Z. So they're kind of creating that tailored experience and they say this is the benefits, this is what you'll experience. And so all along the way, it's solidifying a belief, it's creating a belief, it's changing the likelihood of that orthotic to work because we're changing all those other parameters that the experience, the context, belief, all of those sort of things. So enhancing the effectiveness of what a placebo might have And this is not to say that orthotics are a complete sham and don't work and there's no evidence behind it. That's not what I'm saying because they could still be evidence-based, but the placebo effect will still have a contributing factor to the overall outcome. We we might take something that is absolutely evidence-based and and use, say, um, knee-strengthening exercises for for patellofemoral pain or like kneecap pain. And so you could be sold on the strengthening. You could be say you, you could explain or the therapist could explain, okay, you have knee pain because of your overloaded the body. Um, you've exceeded your capacity. What we need to do now is find a, a healthy range of loading. That's not going to flare you up, but isn't going to underload you either. And so we're going to try and find your new adaptation zone strengthen up the the muscles, strengthen up the joints in order to not only start fostering strength, but then build upon that and progress those exercises and build you up so that you can go back to tolerating the loads that are required for running. So these are the exercises we're going to try. We're going to see what's right for you. And again, this explanation is enhancing the placebo effect. On the opposite side, if you were in real pain if you're in real discomfort with your knee and the therapist will say oh you know what maybe let's try some strengthening uh, we'll just see how it goes if it, it might be painful but um, I think it might make you better let's just see and then you try some exercises and they are quite painful and the therapist says yeah pain's okay um, away you go and it's a, a horrible experience the therapist was rude and condescending and then you're left with these exercises and they're painful. You're not sure what to do. Uh, The treatment is exactly the same. The overall treatment is identical, but what's changed is the experience, the context, your belief in whether it's going to work or not. And therefore that placebo, or in this case, the nocebo will have a particular effect. It's going to increase the likelihood of it working or increase the likelihood of it not working. And so, yeah, it doesn't matter about the the actual orthotic itself. It doesn't matter about the strengthening itself. It matters on the delivery and the past expectations you might have towards that treatment. If you've had dry needling done before on three other injuries and they it's been totally ineffective, and then you have this new injury and a therapist suggests, let's try some dry needling, you're coming into that with a, a really low expectation and the probability um, of having a favorable outcome is lower. And so then you go on to blogs, then you go on to social media and you say, I have plantar fasciitis, what has helped you? And you get this wide array of 
effects. You get this wide array of things that have helped, that haven't helped, um, and it just leads to confusion. And I believe that that patient placebo is one of the reasons why. Moving on to number three, something, it's still in the, um, the realm of placebos, but this is the therapist placebo. And so patients are subject to placebos. The patient, is, uh, the therapist is also subject to the effect of placebos. And this was a, an interesting one and one that I've only just, I had been thinking about and I'm, I just couldn't really put my mind to it. But once I delved into the effect that this therapist placebo has, it, it makes a lot more sense. And so the therapist placebo is, we'll use, um, Orthotics is an example in this in this one. So if you have a therapist that is constantly prescribing orthotics and their delivery for those orthotics is top-notch and they say um, someone comes in, they have plantar fasciitis and they say, look, this is our wide range of orthotics and their delivery is really nice. They answer all the questions. They're very polite. Um the clinic itself looks pristine, looks very clinical and looks very inviting. And then the therapist is very good with the patient. They provide these orthotics and say, this is the effects it can have. Try it on. How do you feel? If you feel great, oh, awesome. This is going to be, work well for you. And enhances that placebo effect for the patient. But then the therapist starts to see the outcome that that has. And the, the outcome can have the outcome itself is going to solidify the beliefs of the therapist that the orthotic is actually working. The, most therapists don't consciously know about this placebo effect. It's just, it just happens in the background. And if their delivery and their explanation and the answers that they provide, all the questions that they answer is um, top-notch, it's going to enhance the placebo effect. And therefore, they'll see the outcomes right in front of them. They'll see these orthotics dramatically reducing pain levels dramatically enhancing positive outcomes and that will constantly solidify that orthotics work. It will constantly solidify that this is the right answer. And I think um, back when I did my dry needling course, it was like one or two years out of graduation and this, this gentleman who was probably in his early 40s who took the course, um, who actually conducted the dry needling course. He was very well versed in the research. He loved dry needling. He just um, talked about it to cure a lot of things, not cure, but reduce symptoms in a lot of things. And there was about 30 physios in that course and this, this one guy conducting it. And throughout the weekend, he would say, okay, who has knee pain? I think it was over two weekends. Who has knee pain? You know, a couple of people put their hands up and he would just so delicately go through and dry needle them and talk about the effects and talk about the enhancements. And the outcomes that he got were phenomenal. Almost everyone that he dry needled, they had a huge drop in pain straight away instantly. It was like five minutes of treatment, take it out. How do you feel? And they said, I feel amazing. And that is a lot to do with the patient placebo, because like I said, this guy is very experienced in dry needling. He knows a lot about it. He knows exactly what to do. He knows how to talk to people, how to feel. 
and the outcomes are a lot better. But on the on the other side of the equation, the therapist placebo, he's seeing these miracles like every time he dry needles people. So he is going to be so convinced that dry needling works. And he's probably not honed in too much on the patient placebo and just um, focusing on the benefits of dry needling. And so if this is obviously allowing for some of that misinformation, that confusion that's out there, because someone who comes in with hip pain and someone says, yes, you need orthotics, orthotics would definitely um, do you the world. Then, or let's just say you've, you're on social media and you say, um, I have shin splints, um, what should I do? And then a therapist reaches out and said, orthotics will, will be very good for you. And then you go to get orthotics. You don't go to a health professional. You just get an off the shelf something and you see how it goes and the outcome isn't as great. That's why you notice that difference in outcomes. So that's number three. We have six to go. And so the next one I want to have, I want to talk about is the misinterpreting treatment benefits. So let's let's dive into that. Misinterpreting treatment benefits. Pretty much is like if... um. You have some treatment done, you have a, a few things done, but you're misinterpreting the actual effectiveness of it. And I use this in the book when it comes to most running experiences. If they, if you go to a therapist and your therapist is very well versed in how to treat this particular injury, you're going to get a couple of things. It, let's just say it's shin splints. You're going to have one education, education about the injury, education about the treatment and the management moving forward. Two, you're going to have load modifications. This is for the vast majority of running related injuries, load modification. So if you, the current load that you are doing, if that is too much for that injury, we're going to modify that load by reducing it and or distributing it and trying to find a load that you can currently tolerate. So that's what we talk about with load modification. It might be reducing your running loads. It might be um, mixing up things with cross training. It might be um, avoiding sitting or standing for too long. It might be just modifying things throughout your day, um, changing up how much you can lift at work. This is what we talk about with load modification. And the third is strengthening or rehab in some form. So if it is a running related injury, if it is shin splints, strength training is usually around like the lower limb. It's usually around the calf. It's usually around like the foot and ankle, those sort of things. So education, load modification and strengthening exercises or strength rehab. And then there might be treatment B, which is what I've labeled. So Treatment B can be anything. It could be massage, it could be cupping, dry needling, um, ice packs, taping, orthotics, foam rolling, stretches, changing of your running shoes. It could be a whole bunch of different things. Like just take your pick. But no matter what people pick, it is it should still have those other three components. So treatment, Patient A receives treatment, education, load modification, strength exercises, and then whatever treatment B you want to include. And like I said, it's the bucket of all of those things that you want to try. Now, people might misinterpret what's actually making them better. You might say, 
uh, okay, I have shin splints. This therapist tells them about the shin splints, educates them on the management moving forward. They say, oh, looks looks like you're not tolerating a lot of load at the moment. Let's back off your running. So let's halve your running mileage, but you can still do some cycling here and there. In the meantime, we're going to do some strengthening exercises. So you're going to do some bent knee calf raises. We're going to see what type of load you can tolerate with those. Then we're going to prescribe those as a home exercise and you're going to progress along those. Then the patient follows those instructions. But when he gets home, he said, there's probably more that I'm after. Looks up shin splints, finds online there's some stretches that can help. And so commits to those stretches three times a day alongside the physio instructions. And one to two weeks later, miraculously better and contributes that reason to having like to the the stretches or let's just say um, decide to change shoes. That, that might be even better. So education, load modification, strength exercises. Then this person's gone home, Googled um, shin splints, running shoes, and then up comes an ad that says this running shoe helps with shin splints, gets those shoes and slowly over the next two to three weeks, symptoms improve dramatically back to pain-free running and this individual is now convinced that the shoes were effective, convinced that whenever someone has shin splints, they should buy these shoes when, in fact, we're not entirely sure what it was. Um, it could have been the shoes, but most likely most of the um, effect, most of the benefit is from that education, load modification, and strength exercises. Now, the shoes could have a potential um we would need to do a scientific study and separate all these variables, but we don't have that. But I have encountered a lot of occasions when someone has done treatment B, anything within that bucket, and they are convinced that is what has cured them. But then you have a look into a few other things and what else did you do to change your treatment or what else did you do to try and help? And they said, oh, you know, I tried some calf raises. I tried some strengthening here and there. Oh, and I did take... Um, five days off running and then slowly build my way back up. That was, That's a very common one is when someone's injured, they back off the running for a couple of days and they slowly build back up. But in that time, they may have done something within that treatment B bucket. They may have gone and got a dry needling session and they're so much better. And it might've just been that load modification. It might've just been that three or four days offloading and then a slow gradual return back to running that could have been all that it is. But also keep in mind, in most cases, the body heals itself. It might not heal itself if you have complete rest, but if you have a muscle tear, the body does a miraculous job of healing itself. If you mismanage that injury, it will not heal, but the body does a pretty good job of just, um, yeah, coming up with its own healing properties. And so, Sometimes it could just get better spontaneously. If I have my, uh, the other week I had a, a hip flexor issue that was just bothering me. Um, I think it was during squats or something and it bothered me for two days. And then without any intervention, it just went away because the body just does that job of, in most cases, settling things down and then it goes away. And so if I was to do one treatment within those two days of it spontaneously healing, I could have attributed that treatment to that miraculous recovery. 
So there's a lot of things interplaying here. There's a lot of things that are going on, but the likelihood of someone misinterpreting the benefits of a certain treatment can be quite high. And so that's where we need to be very skeptical. We need to be very cautious. If someone has posted onto social media, I've had plantar fasciitis, what has helped you? And you get all these different responses. Maybe, just maybe, someone has misinterpreted their treatment benefits based on that experience, whatever that might be. I've done, I've thrown a, a fair few examples out there and that could, um, yeah, re- relate to a lot of misleading sort of misleading beliefs. And speaking of that, like the narrative as well can be very detrimental or very misleading, very confusing. If a treatment program is prescribed and you get better, but attach an unhelpful narrative along that treatment path. And I have an example in the book about people saying that their glute muscles are switched off or their glute muscles are lazy, their glute muscles. Someone said that um, her therapist said that she had dead bum because her glutes just aren't switching on or firing. They're extremely weak. And while weakness is different, yes, you could the weakness in the glutes, you could have weakness in your glutes and that could lead to an overuse injury. You could have weak knees and that leads, uh, increases the likelihood of overloading your knees if you go for a run for too many miles. But the narrative with glutes switching off, glutes not activating, dead butt, all those sort of things is just extremely unhelpful. And let's walk through a classic example of this. Someone comes in with... um let's say a hamstring hamstring pain, high hamstring tendinopathy, let's say. And they go to a therapist and their therapist says, no wonder your hamstrings are being overloaded. No wonder you've had this pain for so long. Your glutes aren't switching on. In fact, your glutes are misfiring, they're lazy, and we need to get them activated again in order for you to start um, offloading the demands of the hamstring. And this is because you, you sit for so long in your day and your glutes are switched off. Um, we need to wake them back up again and you need to feel these glute muscles activating. So let's start some strengthening exercises. So they might do things like deadlifts. They might do things like squats. They might do things like crab walks and say, do you feel your glutes switching on? Are they waking up? Are they, um, switching out of that lazy mode and this person is like, oh, I can, I can't feel my glutes. Like they're not, I don't feel like they're firing. Oh, well, let's try something else. Do you feel your glutes firing? And constantly this narrative throughout the rehab process is my glutes aren't switching on. I need to wake up my glutes. I need to build up the strength. And slowly over time, what happens is the injury gets better because like we say, we've that load modification and the strengthening exercises. Yes, there is education. The education might be a little bit misleading. Um, The narrative might be a bit false, but the education is still there. And people get better because they're doing their strength exercises. They're building up their load tolerance. But throughout that entire process, there is a poor narrative attached to it. And then people then get better. And you might think that, no, what's the harm? What's the harm if they're getting better? Well, I've seen that the harm is afterwards, once they are better, they, 
they're in constant fear of like their um, hypervigilance towards activating their glutes. When they're running, they're trying to feel their glutes activate. When they're doing their squats, they're trying to consciously squeeze their glutes. When they're doing any particular exercise, it's trying to feel the fatigue in the glutes. And it's uh, it's this narrative, I don't want to have my glutes switching off again. And it almost becomes overactive and it becomes hypervigilant and you actually start to move a bit differently because you're in fear of this. And in fact, like evidence doesn't show any sign of what this glute switching off, this dead butt, this getting lazy, like Greg Lehman I had on the podcast, we had a, a rant about this as well. And it's it's an it's a poor, unhelpful, I think detrimental narrative that you attach to an injury. And this might be a little bit of a ramble about misinformation, spreading misinformation, but Often I'd see someone post something that says, I have knee pain, what should I do? And someone says, it's because your glute muscles aren't switching on. And it's because that narrative has been attached. And that narrative is also accompanied by fear, also accompanied just by confusion. And that's where it can be often unhelpful. So I thought I'd mention that as well. I have (laughs) two to go. This episode's going a lot longer than I thought it would be. Um, I just have a lot to say. This is why it's taken me so long to write this book because I just constantly just ramble with ideas. Um, Number five is the lag in the published research. And when we are talking about research, keep in mind that we are constantly striving forward with publications and high quality evidence to try and help decipher a lot of this information, to help try and best understand injury prevention, how to overcome an injury, how to increase running performance safely. We try our best to... um, design a study that is robust, design a study that has the least amount of biases possible and see what the outcome is. And that's the idea. Every study has its limitations. Every study does have biases kind of creep in there, but we try and control those to the best of our ability. And then we interpret those signs. We interpret those results and say, look, there are these limitations, but here's the results. Um, Yeah, and then it's just open to interpretation and um, open to the author's conclusions with those limitations and biases that might be in place. Anyway, the research, when I was at uni, one of our lecturers told us that 50% of what we are currently teaching will be made redundant in about five years. That meaning out of all of our curriculum, 100% of what we're learning now In five years' time, 50% of that will be uh, either shown to be like redundant, shown to be uh, false, and just been proven otherwise with other emerging evidence. The tricky thing is we just don't know which 50% it is. So that's extremely confusing. It's extremely... um, well, I found it as a bit depressing knowing that, you know, 5% of what I'd, le- uh, 50% of what I'd learn isn't going to be evidence-based or there's going to be evidence, more recent evidence emerging that contradicts what we're currently learning. I think that was actually true. There was, there's so much of what I've learned, particularly around running that I learned at uni and maybe first year of uni that are just, I, I now know is not true. And this is because of the lag in published research. It just goes to show the amount of research that comes out that 
changes our ideas around how we treat or like the effectiveness or the care that we take in treating patients. But the lag is very surprising as well. And there was a paper that came out in 2011 that said that 17 years, there is a 17 year lag between when research is first published and says, uh, we no longer do knee mobilizations to help patellofemoral pain. Um, it is ineffective or like ultrasound, like um, therapeutic ultrasound is a sham therapy that is ineffective as shown to be ineffective. It then takes 17 years for clinical practice to start changing the way they actually conduct their treatments. And that is an extremely long time. So I'm not entirely sure when therapeutic ultrasound was made as a sham, probably in the early nineties. Um, <clears throat> easy to do, easy to do a, a, a clinical trial to, um, to blind participants and think that they're having this ultrasound when in fact they're not and see what the effects are. And they show that, you know, the actual therapy of therapeutic ultrasound is no greater than the placebo, the people in the placebo. And therefore they say it's a sham therapy. You're better off doing X, Y, Z. Once that paper is published, ultrasound is still conducted for 17 years until they decide to change their mind and then say, oh, that's old sham therapies. Let's try and do something else. Very loose example, but the 17 year lag is um, where we need to focus. It takes an extremely long time. Why that is, I'm not too sure. A lot of people are quite stubborn. A lot of therapists are just like used to what they're doing. Um, goes back to the therapist placebo. If they are explaining therapeutic ultrasound, really well to patients and they are responding to the placebo effect and they are getting better. The therapist is now believing that the treatment itself is working and they just keep doing what they're doing. And if evidence emerges and says, this is a sham, they say, I don't care. It's making my patients better. And then they persist with that. It's not probably until a new generation of therapists run through their, their physio course are educated and then come back out there and say, hey, actually, there's more effective treatments out there that gets people better, faster, and more long-term solutions. Let's kick that ultrasound device in the bin. So 17 years. I, I believe this, this was published in 2011. I solely believe now that evidence is more available. Evidence is more... Um, it's easier to access. Um, it's easier to share, obviously, with social media and just the internet in general. Um, so that 17-year lag is probably a lot, um, ha has been cut dramatically, but it's the effect is still there. I think people are still quite stubborn, and if new evidence emerges, there's still that lag um, just because of, yeah, stubbornness. But um, <clears throat> you probably see me on social media once a week. I release a paper of various different types and show this is X, Y, Z. Some of those are research that is done this year, some last year, and then some of my favorites that were um, a couple of years old, but that's how easy it is just to put a research paper into your hands. Um, so I do believe that this can be used for good and this can cut this lag, but it's still an effect that's out there. 
Lastly, I have talked about this a little bit already, but number six, oh, let's go through this little recap. So number one of why there's so much widespread misinformation out there, number one is the online producers just needing eyeballs and needing clicks. So they come up with these catchy, quick fixes and these things that pique your interest. Two is the patient placebo. Three is the therapist placebo. Four is just misinterpreting the treatment benefits, especially when there's a whole bunch of different treatments going on at the same time, then you get the benefit and then you try and interpret, okay, what was it that um, created that benefit? Five is the lack in the lag in published research. And number six, why I think there is so much misinformation out there is because of poor regulation. And so companies, they discover pretty much like with the supplement company that I've described before, they know that science sells. They know that selling shoes, selling devices, selling supplements, um, massage guns, they they just know that if you put some science on some labels, it's going to sell. But there's no regulation. There's no one holding them accountable and they're not, these advertising companies and the claims that they make just aren't under the same scrutiny that medical institutions or medical grade devices or um, health professionals are held to when it comes to spreading this information. So say for an example, me as a therapist, I can't, I, um, if I, put myself as a physiotherapist out there on the internet and I was to say something that's totally untrue but that would just get me more sales. If I was to say on my website, I have a physiotherapy clinic, I can heal your knee pain in under two weeks. I cannot say that. I will lose my license straight away because that is a claim that's untrue. I'm making false promises. I might be able to reduce your pain in two weeks, but I don't know. We have, you can't have those sort of promises. You can't have those sort of guarantees. That is a big no-no in this industry. And we are held very accountable about the, the information that we spread and the stuff that we put on our websites. We can't even have testimonials. So if someone really loved my experience and they want to share it out, I say, fantastic, you do that on your own accord. But in terms of my website, in terms of um, me trying to advertise myself, in terms of me putting a a, um, a poster of people that I've, I've had in the past that say Brody's great, I can't do that. If I had the if I had Kip Choge come in and um, <laughs> I helped him with his knee pain, made it so much better, I'd be like, oh, can he? Can I just have a poster of Kip Choge on the wall saying Brody's the best physio? Cannot happen. So that's the the level of, um, it's just the level of regulation that we have. Other devices, shoe companies, supplements, they have none of that and they can say whatever they want. They're not held to any accountability. And so that's why there is so much misinformation out there. That's why people think that foam rolling will release their ITB, foam rolling will increase their blood flow, blood circulation, increase flexibility, all those sort of things. And it's um, just because they're allowed to post those things. They're allowed to make those claims without that same accountability. So they are my six things that I just 
decide to type away and have a rant and hopefully um, you can read chapters like this within the Run Smarter book when it's eventually out and you can start making sense of the world. You can start making sense of why there's so much confusion. Um, And when you do see a whole bunch of different responses on social media, you can say, um, you can say to yourself, oh, well, now I know why there is so many things. And you just take it with a grain of salt. Maybe you try a few different things. Maybe you just see what works best for you. And you can not have the same amount of confusion. You're just going through life saying, okay, I understand why all of these varied responses are out there. Let me just try one thing. And if my symptoms improve, then that's great. I can continue with that. If it doesn't improve, that's why I know that there's the misconception here. Let me try something else. Thanks once again for listening and taking control of your rehab. If you are a runner and love learning through the podcast format, then go ahead and check out the Run Smarter podcast hosted by me. I'll include the link along with all the other links mentioned today in the show notes. So open up your device, click on the show description and all the links will be there waiting for you. Congratulations on paving your way forward towards an empowering, pain-free future. And remember, knowledge is power. Oh, 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 oh,